Thank you for joining us on our Bible class today. We appreciate your presence. And you can now sit back, relax, take a notebook, take your coffee or your hot chocolate or your tea. And let's dive into the Protestant Reformation. We finished with Catholicism and with Greek Orthodox, which really split out of Catholicism. And now we're going to go over the major revolution that occurred in the 16th century. So let's talk a little bit about this first character, Martin Luther, and the history of Lutheranism. Around the year 1530, that's the year that we're at here, 1530, Martin Luther in 1517 famously posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking the Protestant Reformation. His teachings emphasized salvation through faith alone, grace alone, and scripture alone. Those were the, the primary tenets, if you will, of Lutheranism and what he challenged. Now, his intent was not necessarily to start another denomination. He was a Catholic priest himself, but he wanted to address and challenge certain practices of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. So let's go through some important events in this timeline. 1521, Luther is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church and su subsequently goes into hiding. Uh, at that time, people were being burned at the stake, persecuted, just for saying anything against the Catholic Church. But in Luther's case, he was able to hide he had some powerful friends and allies in the government, so he didn't suffer that persecution, which is why Lutheranism was one of the first major Protestant uh, movements to take off at the time. In 1525, the first Lutheran Mass is celebrated, not too long after that, and the term Lutheran in 1529 is first used at the Second Diet of Speyer. Now, what is a diet? That's not something that you eat, but... A diet in the historical context is a historical assembly for a variety of legislative judicial purposes, including matters of governance, taxation, foreign policy. It's something that the government did. For example, the Diet of Worms in 1521 was a significant event in the history of the Lutheran Church because that's where Martin Luther was asked to recant his teachings, but he famously refused, leading to his excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. In 1530, we have the famous Augsburg Confession, which is a key Lutheran doctrinal statement, and that was presented to the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Fast forward to 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, which grants Lutherans legal recognition within the Holy Roman Empire. So now we have this major entity splitting apart from the Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic Church is not liking what is going on. 1741, First Lutheran Church is established in the American colonies. And in the 1800s or so, 
Lutheran immigration to the United States increases and multiple synods are formed. What's a synod? Synod is like a council or assembly, a more so a religious one convened to discuss the matters of doctrine, governance, or other issues that are related to the church. These synods often are administrative and doctrinal. So they, they take up both of those things in the church. Many Christian denominations, including Lutherans, Anglicans, or Orthodox, use the term synod to describe their ecclesiastical councils. So what are some key beliefs of the Lutherans? Like I already said, salvation by faith alone or justification by faith alone, or what is famously known in Latin as sola fide. Lutherans believe that salvation is a free gift of God received through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's true because if we look at Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 8 through 9, that's exactly what we read. You are saved by grace through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now, this is famously going against the teaching that Catholics have, which is salvation by faith and works. They believe you had to obey the sacraments and do a certain amount of things. This was one of the major things that Luther was complaining about from the Catholic Church. Now, let me clarify something, because according to the modern-day advocates of faith alone, salvation uh, by water baptism cannot be considered faith alone, because if you're saying that you're saved, but then you have to be baptized, they kind of separate those two. They don't see them as one. So they're saying that if you have to be baptized, that's something more than faith. However, if we look at Martin Luther's writings all the way back from the 1500s, uh, we will see that he and other reformers were challenging the, that the Catholic Church sold indulgences, i.e. offering a works-based type of salvation. So Martin Luther often taught that salvation was based on faith alone and not based on their works or their meritorious works. But he did not believe or he did not mean that faith alone meant just mental assent to Christ's deity was sufficient. In other words, oh, I believe I'm saved. In fact, Luther's idea of faith alone does not conform to the modern day idea that baptism cannot be required for salvation. So Luther's writings on this are at odds with modern day beliefs of the Lutheran church and other churches that advocate that. Uh, because if you see here in this statement, Martin Luther believed wholeheartedly in the necessity of water baptism as a requisite for salvation, just like the Bible says. And that's written right there in Luther's large catechism, if anyone ever doubts, which is in keeping with the word of God, as we see here in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, we were circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So anybody who tries to propose that faith only and that baptism is an added work, this is a great passage to bring up to say, hey, it's not my work. When I am baptized, this circumcision is done by Christ 
It is faith in his working, which is why I'm being buried with him in baptism. It is not my work. It is the work of God. And that's exactly what Luther also believed. But to add to that, many of the faith-only proponents also miss this passage in James. Martin Luther didn't really believe that the book of James was inspired. I wonder why, <laughs> but uh, James clearly talks about how faith is active together with works. And so faith is made complete, as he says here, by our works. Verse 23 says, the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God friends. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So that is in direct contradiction of the faith only proponents. A very important passage to keep in mind when you're speaking with somebody who says sola fide is enough. No, it is not. Another key belief are sacraments. Yes, they do have sacraments, but they don't have a whole bunch of them like the Catholics or the Orthodox. They only have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper or what they call Holy Communion. So it's a very reduced list from what the Catholics and the Orthodox Christians had. But again, this concept of sacrament is not really in the Bible. So what is a sacrament or what do they call a sacrament? Well, they they call this a venue by which you obtain God's grace. So that's a definition that's really not in the scripture. And Paul's definition of grace is not particularly tied to any one thing like they do, whether baptism or the Lord's Supper or whatever other sacraments the Catholics and the Orthodox say. When we read here in Romans we see how the Holy Spirit teaches us about grace. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. So apart from the law or not in the law, we see God's righteousness. And this was attested by the law and the prophets. And what is that righteousness? Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this actually supports that idea about faith alone saves. And yes, it is true. It's not by our works, but by the works of God. And faith is made complete by works. Not The works don't save us, right? So that we don't boast. It's the faith but works is necessary for the faith to grow and mature. So how is the grace of God received? Is it through any particular sacrament that we have to obey or hold on to? Not really. It, as, as this passage says, it is all dependent on our faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we receive his grace, because it is not by our own will or doing that we, re, that we receive redemption. Christ Jesus already redeemed us. So another key belief is sola scriptura uh, or scripture alone. So Lutherans, as opposed to the Catholics, they believe that the Bible is the highest authority in matters of faith and practice. And that's in keeping with the scripture, with the scriptures, as we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. 
so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in that, they are correct. And again, they were shying away from that idea that Catholics were saying that tradition and Bible are, are on the same plane. And nope, the Protestant says, no, 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 no. Only the scripture has all authority. So they were correct in that. Another key belief of the Lutherans is this two kingdoms doctrine. Now, what is that two kingdoms doctrine? Where Lutherans hold that God rules the earthly kingdom through government and laws and the heavenly kingdom through the gospel. Okay, uh, we can kind of see that, right? We can kind of see that in scripture. Romans 13 verse 1 talks about there is no authority but God and all the authorities that exist, especially those on earth, are instituted by God. So it is true. God uses human government to delegate his authority. And we also see here that Jesus really is the one that has all authority. He's the ultimate ruler of heaven and earth for now. Matthew 28, 18 makes that clear. All authority has been given to me. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 also says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and every tongue confess. So if anything, the two kingdoms that the Bible really talks about, I don't agree with how the Lutherans define it, but the two kingdoms are really the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, not necessarily the kingdom of earthly rule and law. That's one of the way that God rules human beings through the authorities, but they forget to mention the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So those are the two powers that we see here, as we also see from Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loved. So here we see those two contrasted there. Also, Ephesians 6.12 talks about our struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of darkness. So that's the kingdom of darkness right there. So... Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. I, I disagree with their definition of the two kingdoms. I like the definition of the Bible's two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You know, the doctrine does help people understand that there are two realms and the Christian lives with that tension of being part of both. But to emphasize it as a doctrinal matter is uh, I don't think that they're doing it the way the Bible does. So another key belief, law and gospel. Lutherans emphasize the need to rightly divide the law, which shows humanity's sinfulness, 
and the gospel, which delivers the good news of salvation in Christ. So that's how they see the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what they mean by the law, meaning the Old Testament or the law of Moses and the gospel being the New Testament. So, okay, I can see, I can see that. I can see what they're doing there uh, to help people rightly divide, as we're told in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself to God as an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or as the Christian Standard Bible says, correctly teaching the word of truth. So yes, we do have to we, we do have to know how to properly interpret the law and understand that it doesn't apply to us in Christ Jesus, that the law had a purpose, and the purpose is to draw us near to God or really understand our sinful nature and how we're all sinners. Another key belief of the Lutheran church is they believe in a priesthood of all believers. So they believe that all Christians have direct access to God, as opposed to the Catholic church. The Catholic church told you, you needed a man, a priest to mediate between you and God to forgive you of your sins here on earth and to administer the sacraments. Well, the Lutherans say, no, no, every believer has access to God. However, that being said, <laughs> they still believe in the need to ordain people to administer the sacraments of water baptism and the communion. So there's still a little bit of a trace there of that clergy laity divide in the Lutherans. They don't do away with it entirely. Uh, so priesthood for all believers? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a little bit murky according to them. We know that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And we know that we all have access to God. No brother needs to intercede for me on behalf of Jesus. They can pray for me, but no brother can forgive me of my sins. Jesus has already forgiven me of all my sins, even the ones I do not remember. Another key belief. Follow this one a little closely because this might get a little confusing here with all the nomenclature that I'm about to throw at you. But we're going to repeat this further along. So just in case you don't get it today, we're going to certainly go over it uh, quite a few more times, actually, and especially a lot when we do the book of Revelation. And so the eschatology, eschatology is just a fancy word for the end times, uh, the end times of the church. So what do they believe about the end times? Lutherans hold to a few different views on end times, but traditional Lutherans, by Martin Luther, believe in an amillennial view. And what does that mean, amillennial? They believe that Jesus' reign, spoken of in Revelation 20, is not a literal 1,000-year period. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, the millennial reign or, or Christ's reign is described as a thousand-year reign. And boy, you know, that simple passage of Scripture has given birth to a bunch of different ideas about what that means. And the Lutherans say, well, it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, that thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 is symbolic. It's not a literal thousand years. It's symbolic of how Jesus is reigning right now. So they do believe Jesus is reigning right now. A millennialist do not believe that there will be a literal thousand-year period of peace and prosperity on earth before Jesus' second coming. A millennialist believe that the church is the kingdom of God on earth. That pretty much is we do. 
and that it is growing and spreading the gospel until Christ returns. They believe that Christ will return at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead and to establish his eternal kingdom. Pretty much pretty much what we believe. There's also another belief called premillennialism. And the reason I'm introducing that now, even though Lutherans don't believe in it, is just to get you familiar with the language. There's amillennialism. There's premillennialism. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about that. And then there's postmillennialism as well. We'll get to that in a minute. So what is basic premillennialism? Well, it's the belief that Jesus will return to earth before this millennium, and then he's going to reign a thousand years here on earth physically through the church, and there will be a thousand-year period of peace and righteousness. So premillennialists believe that the millennium will be a literal thousand-year period of time in which Christ will reign on earth while Satan is bound. And I'm not going to say much about that because we're going to revisit this later on. And then we have post-millennialism. And what's, the, what's that? Well, that's the belief that Jesus Christ will return to the earth after the millennium. So post-millennialists believe that the church will gradually evangelize the world, bring about a period of peace and prosperity, and they believe that Christ will return at the end of this period to judge the living and the dead. So all they're doing is moving around, whether Jesus is coming before the millennium or after the millennium. And the amillennialists believe, no, it's symbolic. It's not a literal thousand-year reign. He is reigning now. So that's your basic difference right there. Later on in the future, we'll revisit this and add a little bit of more definitions because it can get a little complicated, but I'm keeping it simple for now. We, we went over some key beliefs of the Lutherans, and I share with you some scriptures about how to counter some of their key beliefs. But let's see some of the key deviations. These are for sure deviations from scriptures. Infant baptism being number one. Uh, some, just like the Catholics, Lutherans practice infant baptism, something that the New Testament does not teach because babies, their place is the kingdom of God. They are innocent. There is no such thing as original sin. There's no original sin that needs to be washed away. There's also, they also believe in the communion in a slightly different way than the Catholics. If you remember the Catholic, the Catholics believe that Jesus is literally in the bread and in the wine, that the bread literally turns into his body. The wine literally turns into his blood. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. So Lutherans believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and they call that consubstantiation. A lot of big word for, for, for nothing. So it differs slightly. And it's a topic of great theological debate based on texts like 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. So they don't believe that the bread turns into the physical body or the wine turns into the physical body. They just believe that Jesus is is real. He's really there. He's present when we take the Lord's Supper and that they call consubstantiation. Uh, we believe Jesus is there with us always, you know, when, when we remember him in the bread, but we don't have to call it something fancy like that. 
<laughs> we just say, hey, he, he is present. He called us to remember him. And we know that he is always with us because we're two or three gathered together. There he is among us, not necessarily just when we take the Lord's Supper. So they also have this liturgical tradition. So Lutherans retain a lot of the liturgy and the church hierarchy from the Catholic Church. So that when, when you go to visit a Lutheran church, kind of like the building that we're in, if you notice, <laughs> it kind of looks Catholic. It's very high church, right? It's not low church. Uh, I know I was uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but the first the first few months we were there in that building, I was kind of looking around and I don't know, you know how I should feel about this. <laughs> so it took me some time to get used to the high church feeling. Now I don't even notice it, but I can imagine some of our guests, how they may feel uh, because of all the liturgy and the showiness. Uh, they also wear special robes and they engage in special forms of liturgy. They have a certain church hierarchy uh, that does not follow the Bible. It really just follows Catholic tradition. And they believe in ecumenism even more so than the Catholics do. They, especially in now in more modern times, they engage in many ecumenical efforts. So let's talk about their worship a little bit. So as you can see here, you know, this would this be Catholic or would this be Lutheran? You wouldn't, you couldn't tell, right? Because this almost looks like a Catholic mass, <laughs> uh, but it actually is Lutheran. It's very similar. They include many liturgical elements, hymns, and the style varies throughout different Lutheran congregations. They do affirm the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed as their statements of faith. And they have clergy or pastors who are ordained to serve as spiritual leaders. They administer sacraments. They're the only ones who can do that. They provide pastoral care. And as you can see in this picture, they use special vestments to set them apart from the laity. So you see there's still a bit of a clergy-laity divide here. And the Augsburg Confession, which is the foundational document of the Lutheran Church, they state that it is lawful for priests to marry. So celibacy is not required. So that's a big difference from the Catholic Church. And today, a vast majority of the Lutheran clergy are married. And many denominations encourage their clergy to marry. There are a few exceptions, though. For example, in the Lutheran Church, you're not allowed to be ordained as a bishop of the Lutheran Church if you're married. So uh, that's the only difference. They're kind of similar, though, right, to the Eastern Orthodox Church. We saw that being true in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well. So over the centuries, the Lutheran Church has split into various denominations within itself and synods, including the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the LCMS, and many, many others, and each have slightly different doctrinal emphases and practices. So what were some contemporary movements right along there with that Lutheran uprising? Well, there were a few movements during this early time in the 1500s of the Protestant Reformation. So uh, I'm trying to follow kind of like a timeline here of which denominations I go over. So I want to mention these contemporary movements. The Anabaptists were a big, big movement 
during the time as well. A matter of fact, the some key leaders of the Anabaptists were Catholic priests, just like Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. And so at this time, they're also protesting the Catholics and making their own movements. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. Out of the Anabaptists, we have the Mennonites and the Amish. Uh, we also have the Moravian Brethren at this time and the Universalists. So time permitting, let's see if we can cover these. So what is an Anabaptist? That term comes from the Greek word anabaptizo, which means to baptize again. So the Anabaptists are a Christian movement. They originated around the 16th century during the time of the Protestant Reformation, but they opposed infant baptism, unlike the Lutherans. The Lutherans believe in infant baptism, but these Anabaptists opposed it. Uh, so the Anabaptists argued that baptism should be a conscious choice made by an individual old enough to understand its implications. Yeah, well, that's kind of like we what we believe too. Um, what are the key belief and practices of Anabaptists? Well, they believe in adult baptism, number one. They are very pacifist. They are committed to a nonviolent way of life. And they often avoid military service. And they believe that they shouldn't get involved with the world. So they believe in communities that are typically separated from general society, like the Amish, like the Mennonites. They're kind of separated from the world. They live on their own, very tight-knit communities. They insist in the independence and autonomy of each local congregation, just like we do. And they, they claim to be very Bible-centered. They emphasize the authority of the Bible. So two popular Anabaptist groups that you may recognize are one of them, the Mennonites, and they are of the Anabaptist tradition. And they are named after this man called Menno Simmons. Menno Simmons. He was a Phrygian. That country doesn't exist anymore. What's Phrygia? <laughs> Those were coastal regions along the North Sea. They're known today now to be Netherlands, Germany, and Denmark. So that's where Phrygia was. So he was from that region, and he was a religious leader who followed the teachings of the earlier Swiss Anabaptists. And this movement began in Switzerland around the 1500s during the time of the Protestant Reformation, right there when Luther was nailing his 95 theses on that door. So Menno Simmons, who was he? He was a former Catholic priest, just like Martin Luther was. He left the Catholic Church. He joined this Anabaptist movement. And the Mennonites were formed a little later based on his teachings and also those of the early Anabaptists. So in 1536, Menno Simmons leaves the Catholic Church. He joins the Anabaptist group. And uh, they were both contemporaries, Menlo Sim Menno Simmons and Martin Luther. But their two movements were very distinct from each other. The Mennonites emphasize more so the teachings of Jesus as described in the New Testament. They were not into all the liturgy 
and the vestments and all that stuff that distinguished the Lutherans. They also believed in adult baptism. That was a big difference. And they were very much pacifists. They avoided any kind of violence, any kind of military service, and they stressed the importance of community, social justice, and living the Christian lifestyle. And over the centuries, Mennonites have split into many different groups. In North America, we have several Mennonite communities of varying degrees of conservatism. Uh, for example, there's a strong presence in the U.S., in Canada, but also in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And the Mennonites nowadays, they are known for their focus on charitable works, on their community building. Their tradition of mutual aid is evident in their contributions to social welfare, including education and healthcare. They've built many schools and many hospitals. And Mennonite farmers are often credited with helping poor countries develop sustainable agricultural practices. So they're known for those good works. Now, what about the Amish? Now, by the way, the Mennonites, the old Mennonites and the Amish are almost indistinguishable. They, they dress the same. Uh, they look very similar. The newer Mennonites that you might encounter when you go to the Sight and Sound Theater, which is predominantly Mennonite, they're a little bit more modern, so they might not look so much like the Amish. But then you got the Amish, or otherwise known as the Pennsylvania Dutch. And the Amish church is also a Christian Anabaptist denomination, originating a little later in the late 17th century in Switzerland and Alsace. The movement was founded by Jacob Amman. Amish, Amman, right? That's where the name comes from. Amman was first a Mennonite leader, but he thought that stricter observance of the Anabaptist principles should be followed, including a practice called Maidum, which is the practice of shunning, like shunning worldliness or, or shunning people for not following the right path. And they adopted a very conservative dress, conservative lifestyle. And his views led to that divide between the Mennonite community and his followers. And his followers became known as the Amish. So what are some key beliefs and practices of the Amish? Well, one of them is called Ordnung. And, and you know, all these are Germanic words. So sometimes they're hard to pronounce. Ordnung. This is a set of rules and guidelines, often unwritten, that govern everyday Amish life, including how they dress, what technology they're allowed to use, what technology they need to avoid, and how to behave. And each Amish community has its own version of the Ordnung, or the unwritten rules. So different Amish communities have these variances among each other. They also believe in adult baptism, like other Anabaptists. Typically, young adults are baptized. And often after a period of what they call rumspringa. And what is that? During rumspringa, they are allowed to an opportunity to make their own choice, whether they want to be Amish or they want to go join the world and experience life outside the Amish community. And surprisingly, they retain a really, really high percent of Amish where they really see while well, the world is not offering them anything. What a testament, right, to their community building. I admire them for that. The Amish are very pacifist. They don't participate in the military. They don't pay social security. I mean, they're completely cut off from the world, from, from
from the power grid, from everything. You know, their communities are self-sustaining farm communities. They love to live simple lifestyles, agrarian lifestyles, and they avoid or limit. Sometimes they have really funny rules about that. Like, yeah, you're not supposed to have a phone in your house or use the phone. But if you got to make a call, yeah, you can use a public phone. So sometimes you find those inconsistencies there. Although there are some newer Amish that are now a little more free to use technology. So they're like the more liberal Amish nowadays. But uh, that's, you usually can tell the Amish by the way that they dress, their, their little horse carriage, as you see here in the, uh, in the slide. So let's move quickly on to the Moravian brethren because our time is uh, running short. What are the Moravian brethren? Well, that's the Moravian church, also known as the Bohemian brethren or in latin unitas fratrum which means unity of the brethren it's one of the oldest protestant denominations again with its roots going back to the 15th century right around the time when martin luther was doing his thing but this one started in what's now known as the czech republic and the movement began as part of the hussite reformation inspired by the teachings of the czech theologian and reformer John Hus, who was burned at the stake for heresy in 1415. He Why was he burned at the stake? Because he criticized the church's sale of indulgences, the same thing Martin Luther did, except Martin Luther had a protector. He had a, a very powerful protector in the Holy Roman Empire, which is why they couldn't touch him. But everybody else was burned at the stake, including John Wycliffe, who was an English theologian, and John Hus followed deeply uh, the teachings of John Wycliffe. Um, so they challenged the supremacy of the Pope, argued that it was Christ, not the Pope, who's the true head of the church, and that the Bible was the ultimate authority, all these basic things. And yet he was burned at the stake. Yet he influenced these people who, and this community of Moravians, you know, is still alive today and directly influenced by his teachings and practices. So what are their key beliefs and practices? Well, the Moravians are very, very ecumenical. They, they basically welcome everybody. They, they don't have much distinction about what makes you be in this faith or not. And one, one of the things that they're really known for is their missionary zeal. They're one of the most missionary-minded churches all the way from the beginning. They were one of the first people to send missionaries all over the world, including America, Africa, and Asia, before anyone else did it. The Moravians were sending missionaries, so they influenced a lot of those parts of the world, and they're still alive and well in those parts of the world. Just like the Amish and the Mennonites, they emphasized living in very close-knit communities where faith is practiced as a shared experience. And their liturgy, though, differently from the Lutherans and the Catholics, is very, very simple. Although here in this picture, you see that they use vestments as well. So. Uh, they, they borrow some of that from the high church as well. They have been pioneers in education, often setting up schools wherever they have settled and educating the community around them. Let's talk about this interesting one, though. And those are the Universalists, the Universalist Church, historically known as the Universalist Church of America. And it was founded on the belief in universal salvation, meaning that everybody will ultimately be saved. No one will be left behind. So this is a major 
doctrinal point that differs greatly from what many other Protestant Christian denominations teach, which teach that there is an eternal hell and that if you don't believe in the gospel, that's where you end up. But the Universalist Church has said, no, there is no such thing. Everybody will be saved. Recently, uh, they have joined the Unitarians and they have formed the Unitarian Universalist Association or the UUA in the United States. So what are their key beliefs and practices? Well, the cornerstone belief is that God loves everybody and everybody's going to be saved. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to preach the gospel. Everybody's going to be saved. They emphasize inclusivity, social justice, the advocation for rights of marginalized groups. And over time, the universalists, they become more liberal, more flexible. They have to, right, as culture changes, since they believe that everybody's going to be saved. Well, their doctrine has to change. Their theology has to change. Talk about conforming to the world, right? I mean, this is one group of people that make it conforming to the world. Their theology, they place high value on the individual. In other words, you are the ultimate authority. They believe that the ultimate authority doesn't lie in the Bible or in society. It lies within you. So you do what you want. You know, you do what you feel. That's kind of like what universalism is about. Sounds like the perfect religion, right? For, for this day and age, you know, if I didn't know any better, I'd be a universalist, right? Everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to be fine. <laughs> so of course, where's the Bible on all this? Uh, nowhere. <laughs> they just simply ignore the scriptures completely when it comes to all these things. And that's what makes the universalists very controversial within the Christian denominations because they reject this doctrine of hell and they have a complete disregard for biblical authority. And so thank you for your attention tonight. God willing, we are going to look at the Anglican Church next or otherwise known as the Church of England and some other groups that formed around that time. All right. Have a good evening, everybody. God bless you. Cause it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne, a Presbyterian or a Methodist that's calling us home, and it won't be a charismatic that plays that trumpet tune. So let's all just live for Jesus.